the reading of the scriptures from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. I invite your reverent uh, hearing and hearing in faith, uh, the public reading of God's word here in Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The text before us uh, is a beautiful picture that uh, Christ uh, does not save good guys. Because there are no good guys. He he saves bad guys. Obviously, the theology perhaps better expressed in Romans 3, there are none righteous, no, not one. None. Christ does not save people who are righteous. Righteous. Not even in degree, because there are none that are righteous. Paul says, no, not one. Uh, And so when he saves, he saves entirely by the majestic weight of his power, uh, totality of his glory, and of course the sovereign good pleasure of his will. 
not a very popular doctrine, but one that is uh, very clearly taught in Scripture. But not only does he save bad guys, he saves them purposefully. Lots and lots of people, and well, God saves, but never gave me a sense of purpose. No, that's not the way Christ does it. We're going to see that in the salvation of Paul. And certainly it's parallel in all of our lives. He saves uh, bad people and he saves them purposefully. Uh, And again, it's dramatically portrayed in the salvation of uh, Saul and analogous to our own salvation. Uh, So Saul is converted. Uh, In his conversion, he is immediately commissioned, and that's the purposefulness of it, And then again, uh, something that's just as radical in our culture, he's confirmed in the church. I I meet with Christians all the time. That may be an overstatement, but certainly met with some Christians on Friday. Professing Christians, gone through a very popular Bible study program in Oklahoma City. No no church involvement. That thought's never, never entertained in the New Testament. That's how radical it is. It's never entertained. So when you come to, come to Saul, you come to you and me, uh, God again saves bad people. He, per, he commissions them. Then He confirms them in the church. Uh, that will become clear as we go through the rest of the book of Acts in the life of Paul. But it's... Uh, it's important for all of us. Let's begin verses 1-9. to nine, The resurrected Christ subdues and wins one of the enemy, namely Saul. Uh, Saul belongs to false religion. Uh, when we were introduced to him, he was complicit in the stoning of Stephen. Now he goes to the high priest to secure authority to persecute the church. And by the way, that is uh, that that scenario is ongoing. That our conversion and commissioning and confirmation of the church is in the midst of, I believe, the end time tribulation. Christ inaugurates it in his trials and crucifixion, but here we see it almost immediately in the life of the church. False religion is petitioned uh, to go persecute the church. as an agent of Satan. Now that's certainly not very popular in our culture. In our culture, uh, every religion stands on its own. There are many roads to the great uh, temple in the sky. Uh, We're all going to get there, except maybe Pol Pot. I mean, that's the drivel that uh, our progressive culture is pressing into the life of the church. Uh, But of course, it's a false religion as an agent of Satan. We know that from the book of Revelation, but certainly be present in the book of Acts. Uh, and at this point, Saul is part of it. Uh, he's he's uh, allying himself as an instrumental part of false religion to persecute the true people of God. He is a confessional person of God, but he's false 
because his religion is false. He goes after what is true uh, because the false hates the true. We'll always hate the true. Uh, but let's, let's make sure we understand the theology that uh, God doesn't uh, save good guys and he saves them by the sovereign good pleasure of his will. The theology of the Apostle Paul is most beautiful here. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were uh, helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. Yes, that was you and me. Of course it was Saul, but it was you and me. And you were helpless, by the way. You You could not save yourself. You had no power whatsoever because you were ungodly. Uh, God has withheld power from you because you were ungodly. But at the right time, uh, even though you were helpless, he saved the ungodly. And that's what I mean, that Christ saves his enemies. Godly enemies. So, well, well, but Phil, he saves nice guys. No, he saves people that are helpless who are ungodly. It even intensifies in Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, for while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Notice the beginning phrase, while we were his enemies, God reconciled us. An act of sure, undiluted, pure grace. Who saves their enemies? We try to destroy our enemies. That's our national defense. Uh, we, way life is, not God. If God didn't save his enemies, none of us would have been brought to the faith. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And he reconciled us. He reconciled us. Uh, we were irreconcilable. He reconciled us. And that's Saul. And so, one of the enemies is one. If you're a Christian at some point in your life, God in his power, sheer grace, uh, saved you. Never understood all this uh, theology of we participated. How do the ungodly participate? I don't get that, but I I understand. So, the... resurrected Christ interdicts Saul just as he interdicted you. Now, grant you, it's not like Saul's conversion. Uh, my, just drawing analogy, parallel. Uh, but it incurs theologically in the exact way, and that's, that's the greater point. And so the resurrected Christ uh, converts and commissions his enemy. Saul is going north to Damascus for sinister purposes. And suddenly the light of the glory of Christ confronts him and speaks to him. It's a great illustration that the initiative was all of Christ. And getting in, Christ initiates the encounter. That's the way it was in your life. I don't know where you were, what you were doing. I just know that you were irreconcilable and that you were ungodly and you were an enemy. 
in some manner or form, Christ initiated the act of salvation. The initiative is entirely the Lord's. It has to be because of what we were. Very interesting that the verb uh, flashing light is used in the Greek translation of uh, uh, four Maccabees. A very interesting context because it's very parallel. Now again, four Maccabees is not part of our Bible, but it's a, it's a good history. Uh, but again, it's not in our Bible. I don't want anyone to go away saying something strange happened in church today. No, just I'm, I'm, I'm quoting, if you will, uh, a secular source. Uh, the context is the governor of Syria is going to confiscate the treasury, the treasury in the temple. Uh, but he sees an army of angels on horseback with lightning flashing from their weapons. He falls down half dead and is restored by prayer. And this extra biblical event displays the clashing of opposing forces in a similar context. The light, of course, is the uh, divine effulgence of the uh, majesty of Jesus Christ. The glory of God. Uh, he represents the glory of God because he is God. And Saul falls to the ground, defeated and subdued. Acts chapter 9, verse 4. Uh, falls to the ground because the crushing weight of him who is speaking uh, bids him full retreat. Uh, and Christ speaks. There are, uh, there are echoes here, I think, of uh, the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. That's Saul. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. It's also, I think, an allusion to Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine. For your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Now here on the road to Damascus. Uh, the context of the book of Isaiah, certainly the uh, second part, beginning in chapter 40, is uh, restoration. And so now we know that the end time restoration, the last final restoration, is inaugurated by Christ. Uh, you know, by the way, speaking to the gravity of the times in which we live, because we're in the last days. Again, I understand in Oklahoma that's very novel theology, but very clearly taught in Scripture we're in the end times. We know that clearly from Acts chapter 2, the coming of the Spirit. End times have begun. Uh, and this, this restoration includes, uh, includes a new way. Notice, notice Acts chapter 9 uh, in verse 2. Uh, Saul wants letters uh, from the high priest of the synagogues, Damascus, so if anyone be found belonging to the way, the way, that's what you and I belong to, the way of Christ if you will, the last great exodus has begun. And you and I are part of it. 
because Christ at some point interdicted you. And even though you were an irreconcilable enemy, he brought you into his way. Uh, this too, of course, is a theology, as you know from Isaiah. Uh, I, I just simply remind you, because it's so critical in our culture, that we see a dramatic unity between the Old and the New Testaments. Not a disunity, but a unity, an organic unity, a theological unity, literary unity. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, a voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, Isaiah says, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. But notice, clear the way of the Lord. New Testament has uh, the Baptist applying this to Christ. He comes. He is the way. That's why I affirm to you my own uh, affirmation that there is but one way and Christ is it. And if you belong to him, you are in... Uh, you are in that way and you are engaging the last great exodus, departing this life on your way uh, to a world without end. Greatest event in my mind of all time. Greatest immigration, uh, bar, bar none. And you and I are part of it because uh, while we were his enemies, he reconciled us to God. And Saul is persecuting the way in opposition to God. Very interesting, the verb uh, persecute is uh, literally to pursue in the sense of pursuing an enemy. And Christ appears and speaks, it's all it takes. At the moment he initiates, it's all that it takes. It engages uh, the conversion of Saul. Uh, it's also, I think, uh, an allusion here uh, to Exodus chapter 3. Moses asked God to identify himself, a burning bush. He responds, I am. And so Saul asked Jesus, uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 5, and he says, who are you, Lord? Uh, and Jesus says, I am. The correspondence, I think, is incredible. Uh, Exodus, I am who I am. Jesus says, I am. I am the one whom you are persecuting. Now notice something's very critical here. It's very important. Uh, Saul was not literally persecuting Jesus, persecuting his church, but they're one and the same. And both Moses and Saul have attempted to advance the kingdom by murder, and both are turned aside by light. The glory is so manifested it blinds Saul. And he's, uh, he's led to Damascus. Uh, use myself as an illustration. I think I, forgive me if I bored you uh, on a repeat, but uh, I used to work for a number of welders. And uh, the arc of a welding torch is so incredibly bright, if you don't protect your eyes, they'll blind you. One time I got my eyes so severely burned, I just, incredible pain because of the light. The glory of the light of the appearance of the Lord is so manifest that uh, 
saw like Phil Bauer socks, even though Welder's Ark is different from the glory of Christ with blinded. So uh, Saul was led to Damascus and for three days and three nights he fasts. Instructive, I think, it's three, three days and three nights. Parallel to our Lord. Uh, we presume from the context that there's conviction, repentance, uh, and of course salvation. And that's, if you will, the first thing I bring to you. The resurrected Christ uh, wins, wins one of the enemy. So, you know, part one's conversion. Uh, to, uh, to repair to another brief history in, in, in my own life, uh, I used to uh, work for the Santa Fe Railroad as a brakeman and a switchman, and essentially uh, we, just, we built trains. That's what we did. Uh, and uh, a train has... As you know, forgive me for sheer redundancy, but a train has, has many cars. I'm just introducing to you, if you will, that there is this massive engine dragging Saul, and car one is his conversion. Uh, and if you're on the way, uh, if you will, that's an analogy to your life. It's interesting to note uh, that this event, if you look at it, Saul on his way to Damascus is not alone, is he? But the event is selective to Saul for his attendance here, but see nothing. The Lord tells Ananias that Saul is a chosen vessel, verse 15. Selective. Well, why? I mean, what's the deal? Luke, writing Acts, why didn't the Lord uh, appear to all of them? Because the grace of God is targeted, selective. The mystery of the divine providence, the doctrine of election. He saves whom he wills. And so if he has saved you, you should be infused with a sense of, of uh, privilege and the daunting reality had nothing at all to do with you, but totally divine choice. Now we abhor that doctrine today, but here's an illustration of it to be sure. There's a number on the road to Damascus God reaches out and grabs one by his glory and power. Again, chosen vessel is a qualitative distinction rooted in divine sovereignty. From this word that we have the, uh, we have the word election, choice. Again, derivative election. Uh, in the New Testament, this word is only used to divine choice. And that certainly couples with the reality of God has to take the initiative. It's uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purposes according to His choice might stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. He called one and not the other. Staggering reality. Sovereign choice. Romans 11.5, in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Uh, we are a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Individual, but 
the true church of Jesus Christ according to God's gracious choice. Now again, those are not my words. The words of Scripture. Uh, part of the way, the eternal way. It applies to us as well. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. Maybe saying, well, yeah, this just doesn't sound right. Uh, I thought I took some of the initiative, and I thought I participated, and God did his, his part, and I do my part. Well, it's a very popular theology, just it's unbiblical. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. He chose. Sovereign choice. Interdict Saul. Interdicted you. Uh, turned an enemy, an ungodly enemy, into a friend. It's all the more dramatic when you include the word vessel. So I'll turn, if you would, to a very difficult chapter. Romans chapter 9. A number of years ago, I had an individual told me, he said, uh, when my preacher was preaching through Romans, he finished 8 and then he, he skipped uh, uh, chapter 9. Well, he should have just skipped all the way to chapter 12, really. But it's the way some people do. They pick and choose. We, we should not do that. Uh, Romans uh, chapter 9, in verses 22 and 23, uh, we learn here about the majesty of God's sovereign grace. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? He did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. God prepared us beforehand for glory in eternity past. Interdicted us on some road at some time and we saw the light of the glory of Jesus Christ brought to faith. Car one, if you will, of the, of the train. Uh, we were the enemy and God sovereignly chose us. Who does that? The mercy of God does that. If it were not so, none of us would have ever come to faith. That's why we should be inflamed in love for God. Because of what he did for us, we could not do for ourselves. We were saved by the power of God and the righteousness of Christ. Well, in verses 15 to 16, uh, the resurrected Christ commissioned Saul. If, if we're building a train, uh, we now have car two. Uh, your life is a car, is a train, has many cars. Uh, hopefully it has the car of conversion. It's also going to have a car of commissioning. Now, there may be aunt car, uncle car, mother, father. Again, I'm just suggesting if you know the Lord, uh, he has commissioned you. He saves you purposefully. Uh, again, in terms of uh, uh, Saul, the purposefulness is found in verses uh, 15 to 16. Uh, notice, Technically, to Ananias, but he's a chosen instrument of mine. He belongs to Christ. He's mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. 
Salvation is purposeful. Saul is commissioned to take uh, the message to Gentiles, kings, and the sons of Israel. Uh, and you and I come to know Paul and the rest of the book of Acts as the apostle to the Gentiles. It's not that he didn't speak to Jews, but uh, principally apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, there's an echo here, very beautiful, of his own description of himself in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 to 16. But when he who had come had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Starts even in the womb of his mother. But really beyond that in time, eternity passed. And that in and of itself is an allusion to a very beautiful text from the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. It's a term of affection. Before you were born, I consecrated you and I've appointed you a prophet to the nations. Commissioning Jeremiah, commissioning of Saul, really a commissioning that comes to us. Our, Our commissioning, of course, is explicitly found in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, uh, we're witnesses, uh, but we are commissioned. There's no such thing as a, as a one-car train. Our election, our salvation is purposeful to be witnesses for the glory of Christ. He doesn't save us to sit off sit like some train car on a side rail uh, engaging nothing but appearance. It's very interesting uh, in terms of uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 15, 16, pardon me, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Uh, Jeremiah is going to suffer greatly. Uh, we're going to learn in the book, book of Acts that... Uh, part of uh, the prosecution of our own consecration to minister to suffer in the end time tribulation, bearing the name of Christ to the world. Uh, So Saul is going to suffer in prosecuting the call of God. You and I will too. Uh, Jesus will pursue him uh, and uh, the Jews will pursue him to destroy him. Uh, and this must not be lost on us. I mean, I would remind you, as the son of the first Adam, you're going to suffer in this life because of the vagaries that the fall introduces. Uh, you're going to die. You're going to get sick. You're going to be in car wrecks. I don't know what venue they have. I just know because of Adam and the fall that we live in a fallen world, and it's straining to be uh, unleashed from that fall. But the fall owns it. Uh, and there's redemption in Christ. Uh, but Christians get sick. Christians go through hard times. Uh, but that's not really what I'm speaking of. This is, uh, this is the reality that when you're a son of the last Adam, you're going to suffer in prosecuting his name before the world. However it comes. Uh, it's different in time and degree. Uh, certainly it is uh, the life of Jesus. It is in the life of Saul. Uh, but nonetheless... You don't get a pass. Encounter Christians on occasion who 
they begin to suffer because of the vagaries of the first Adam, and they want to check out. Certainly run across Christians who begin to suffer in the vagaries of prosecuting ministry, and they want to check out. You can't check out. It's part of the train that God is building for his glory. pursue that here in a moment, but uh, analogous to the Apostle Paul is our own commissioning and the gift of the Spirit. Point of Acts chapter 2. It's a fulfillment of uh, Isaiah prophecies. Uh, but you and I are commissioned. One of my great again, review commissioning texts for us is uh, Revelation chapter 1 in verse 6. Uh, this is a text that speaks to commissioning. He made us to be kingdom priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory, dominion forever and ever, and amen. He makes you a priest. What do priests do? Do they check out? No, they serve the Lord. They advance his kingdom. They represent his glory. Very important. We're priests. It speaks to our commissioning. We're, we're, we're kingdom priests. Of course, in terms of biblical theology, Israel failed. God raises up a new Israel of which Paul is one of the vanguard. And now by the redemptive work of Jesus, we too are the new Israel commissioned to succeed, empowered by the same spirit that's empowering uh, the disciples of uh, the church. And like Jesus and Paul, we too will suffer in the prosecution of our priestly calling. This verb uh, 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 in, in Acts chapter 9, verse 16, how much he must suffer for my name's sake. This verb is used in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29 and 30. Giving to you the reality of what it means to be a servant of, of Christ. Philippians 1.29 For to you has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him. Notice, notice that for the sake of Christ God granted that you believe. If He didn't grant, you would have never believed. It was granted for the sake of Christ. Not only to believe in Him, but to suffer for His sake. There is the coming together in prosecuting the glories of the majesty of the commission of the glorious Lord of heaven. We suffer in his cause. In degree, of course. Uh, but I'm not arguing the degree, just the reality. Suffer in his cause. Verse 30, Philippians 1, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Experiences the same conflict. There is no easy way. That's the grace of God. Grace of God that He empowers us by His Spirit to endure, to persevere, to continue on, parallel to the majestic life of our Savior who endured to the end. God acted upon us, granted that we believed. He freely gave to us grace to believe and to suffer in the prosecution of the gospel. Parallel to the life of Jesus, by the way. Not, not just 
important that we have a parallel to the life of Paul. It's parallel to the life of Jesus. Uh, this becomes clear, just uh, one of many texts, but uh, Acts chapter uh, 14 and verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So we don't get a pass either. Uh, what we get is the glory of Christ and the power of the Spirit and the joy of prosecuting our commissioning as priests and suffering in prosecuting that call. Remember the disciples, the early apostles. Uh, when they were being persecuted, they counted it all joy that they had been given the privilege of suffering for the name of Christ. Well, that's, that's our response. Most people shrink from that. Well, I do too, but at some point you have to engage. It's just our calling. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The end time tribulation has begun. We're a part of it. The way is through it. Christ will lead us through as the great shepherd of the sheep. The captain of our salvation who suffered for us. We don't ever suffer redemptively. We couldn't. Uh, thank God he does for us. So think about it. Conversion, we're commissioned. The commissioning includes suffering. So at least there's two cars in the train now. Look at the third. Resurrected Christ confirms, confirms the commission and conversion of Saul to the church. Uh, verse 10 to down through verse 19. In tandem with the appearance uh, to Saul, God appears in a vision to Ananias. The Lord commands him to go find Saul. He demurs. I mean, I love that. He complains, Lord, you don't have a clue who you're sending me to. Really? Of course, Christ knew. He knew before the foundation of the world. Uh, Jesus answers with a tale of his power and commands him again. He goes and tells Saul, the Lord that has appeared to you on the road to Damascus has sent me to you that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He lays his hands on him. Saul regains his sight. And what happens? He's baptized. Verses 17 to 18. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and he arose and he was baptized. Baptism is one of the great sacraments of the church. The public event in the church announcing a renunciation of disloyalty to Christ and a new loyalty to Christ. It's uh, Saul's identification with the death and resurrection of the Savior. He is now one with the Savior. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who delivered himself up for me. What's true of you and me too? 
you were there. Unified. Not really, but of course in terms of uh, corporate identification. So the fast ends. And Saul's commission is confirmed in the church. So now I have three cars in my train. If you're a Christian, these cars have to be present. Conversion, commission, confirmation in the church. The church. And that will become radically seen more and more as we go through the book of Acts. Sometimes trouble with that because I meet Christians all the time who just don't have any part in the church. I, I told uh, two of them the other day, uh, look, I'm not very smart, but ducks are made for water. You are made for the church. I suspect they shrugged their shoulders, <laughs> went about their business. But just as a reminder that only by the grace of God. So there is a parallel in our lives. Let's turn very quickly to Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Parallel text is Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For grace you've been saved. But uh, notice uh, the commission and the conversion uh, uh, of that commissioning and its reality in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto, unto good works, which God hath long before ordained that you should walk in them. Good works is just another way of saying we're commissioned as his priest to advance his kingdom and to witness of his glory. So a train has an engine, the power of God. It has three cars. I know your life has many other trains, and you may not like my metaphor of your life as a train. You're an aunt, an uncle, or sister, or brother. I don't know. I'm just saying if you're a Christian, you've been converted. You've been commissioned, and you've been confirmed in the church. Always, those three are always going to be present. Uh, I've built a lot of trains in my very short career as a brakeman switchman. They all had more than three cars, to be sure. But one thing for sure, I'd never built a train that had one car. In fact, I'll go another. I've never built a train that had two cars. They had many cars. In the life of the conversion of the great Apostle Paul, there's three train cars here. There's an incredibly powerful engine pulling that train purposefully for the glory of Christ. It's, it's our calling. And... Uh, a great one and a glorious one that it is to be sure.